Clementine for Unreading. Our reasons for reading are as varied as our personalities. The Unreading podcast talks to people about the books they've loved in their life and the reasons why. This week I've had the pleasure of Zoom interviewing novelist, journalist and essayist Priya Basel. Priya's latest essay, the witty and thought-provoking Be My Guest, explores the different facets of food and hospitality and the meaning of generosity. Parallels between food and reading abound. In this podcast, Priya tells us of the importance of reaching for the unknown in literature in a bid to better understand and participate in the world. She shares her exploration of the human condition by Hannah Arendt, Human Acts by Han Kang, and Do Not Say We Have Nothing by Madeleine Tien. Here, her subscription to The New Yorker keeps her mind open and why Otto Lange's approach to cuisine is a lesson in encompassing differences. Priya Basil, welcome and thank you so much for accepting to be on reading today. Uh, you are born in the UK, raised in Kenya. You come from an Indian Sikh family. You now live in Berlin with a German husband. As well as being an author of fiction, You are also a journalist and an essayist, um, including the beautiful essay, Be My Guest. We'll talk about it a bit later. You write for The Guardian, Deedside, Lettre Internationale, and more. And you also curate literary events festivals. You are also part of the Birmachen Das movement, welcoming refugees in Berlin. You are the co-founder of Authors for Peace. You're campaigning against mass surveillance And also, my favorite, I think, a European holiday. You're the co-founder of Rhinoceros magazine, a yearly publication of essays on Europe in transition. My very first question to you has to be, when do you read? Well, um, every day, um, I have to say. I can't imagine a life without reading, um, not just because reading is sort of like the fuel and the lubrication for writing, but because reading is a way of experiencing the world um, both at a remove and very close up. Um, and so I guess... Uh, There are periods of more intensive reading when I would maybe say I can read for several hours a day. Um, and those are really precious and wonderful times. Um, I haven't had any of that for a while, I must confess. So that, that kind of snatches of reading um, at the moment. Um, and I must say that I've even had phases where I haven't managed to really read um, in any concentrated way for, let's say, three, four weeks. And then when I come back to a book and I'm really deep in it and I feel sort of the stillness um, that comes in that process of just being in a book, in a world. And, and then when I step out of that, I think, oh, my goodness, how did I go so long without this? Because you feel like it's such a deep form of nourishment um, and it's just enriches one so much Um, that the idea that I, I somehow let several weeks go by without this fix um, is really shocking to me. And yet when you're sort of in the middle of things, just running through and, you know, not doing it um, or not, not reading in that way, 
one doesn't, one perhaps feels something is missing, but you know, you forget that 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 time with a book um, is so 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 critical, so enjoyable, and so necessary. Yes, I remember hearing you once speak about uh, the tentative thinking process, the quiet and peaceful place a book offers. Yes, I mean, I think if you're reading really good literature, then it's like a space is opened up for you to explore, to listen, to learn, to make misjudgments uh, without the stakes being too high or the consequences being potentially awful because you're just with yourself and this other imaginary world. And I think that is something that uh, is so valuable because otherwise, of course, in when we're in the world, um, our, our actions, our thoughts, our words, our, our responses, they they have consequences and there's much more kind of pressure. And, um, and to have this other world that one can be in from time to time um, is really important. I think all the more so in these very tense times. How did your journey as a reader start? Was it was it an obvious journey or did you come to reading later? Um, it started very competitively, I have to confess, as a young girl. Um, uh, my, my sister was also, who's a year and a half younger than me, also a very avid reader. And there was something a bit acquisitive in our relationship with books. Like we just wanted to have said, yeah, I read three this week and, you know, or I've read... Like, I don't know, we had lists. And so um, and my, my parents would take us to the bookshop every couple of weeks. And um, we were sort of racing each other to get through books. And so there was this very greedy kind of uh, attitude to books. Yes. Greediness again. <laughs> yes. And so you had many books at home. Uh, well, I wouldn't say we had so many at home, but uh, we we were encouraged to, um, to 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 read, and this 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 kind of fortnightly activity of going to the bookshop and being able to choose book, choose books was a very important um, you know sort of mark in the calendar. And I went to a school where there was a library, um, and this also played a very important role. It wasn't a huge library, but it was very, very central in my, in my primary school. That was in Nairobi. Um, and, and even at the school, there was this slightly competitive aspect of really noting down everything you read. And, you know, we had library cards where you could see then at the end of a term how many books you had checked out and read. And yeah, I think a bit of that has, I have to confess, has remained with me. I do retain this kind of acquisitive, um, yeah, impulse with books. Um, so I buy books all the time, really spontaneously. I really have to control myself. Sometimes I say, please wait. You know, if you still want it tomorrow or the day after, then get it. So I've got a bit better, but um, I just want to have them there. And I always think that books are maybe the one thing you can buy without feeling guilty, because, and, and even if they pile up, because they're just like markers of intent and a beautiful promise that's still waiting for you and is not going to go out of date. One of the few things we can rely on in the world at the moment. Yes, that's right. And um, something that, I mean, I love just feeling these these objects, if we can call them that, or if we look at them just in that respect, around me, which are the result of other people thinking and trying to understand the world and share something of, um, of their sense of it uh, with you. 
I think that's a beautiful thing to have around you in your daily life, just in terms of what it represents, let alone once you get into um, the thing itself. There's a line in your essay, Be My Guest, uh, where you speak of the story and the listener uh, opening and unfolding and harboring each other, which is a very beautiful um, idea, concept. It's also a way of uh, participating in the conversation of the world. It seems to me that writing and reading is a very political act to you? I think there's definitely that dimension to it, particularly if, if one makes choices in what one reads, you know. So let's say since the last few years, I made a very deliberate choice to read um, mainly books by women and works in translation, because I became aware that so much of my reading was, uh, you know, really dominated by um, male writers and voices and mostly in English. And, and I wanted to shift that. And so I would say that was a very political decision. On the other hand, the books themselves, uh, you know, once I'm in them, you're also drawn in by kind of pleasure and curiosity and um, just a, a desire to be somewhere else and be in another person's mind and heart. Um, and so it becomes a kind of very intimate um, interaction too. Um, so I think there are many different levels on which, um, I, you know, the choice and the decision of being in a book works on, on you and works and affects your, your, your sense of being in the world too. You do make parallel between uh, books, stories and food. When you speak of eating the same thing regularly and having the same recipe with the same ingredients, that reminds me very much of the process of reading of a young child. A picture book reader will want exactly the same words and you cannot skip a word. Yeah, that's a wonderful association between that, that impulse, that first impulse of the reader that, that, that to confirm something again and again mm. through repetition um, and therefore to, to feel one's place in the world somehow secured and, and, uh, and recognized in, 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 a, in a kind of anticipated way. I do in, in my book, because it deals with ideas of hospitality, and the, sex, the sense of what it means to be welcome and uh, feel welcome in the world. And I think eating the same thing, like recreating the same thing, is, um, is one way of affirming, you know, the things that we like. And so, so with, with stories, I think we tell stories also to affirm a sense of ourselves in the world. Um, and so, I mean, I think we notice this when we tell stories about ourselves that we have certain stories we want to repeat, but they, they slowly, they shift little parts of them. We get better at it in the same way that when you make a dish, you kind of maybe rearrange little parts, add a bit of that or the other, but it's essentially, it's like you're, it's saying something about you. Um, and in the same way we, we build a story of ourselves. Uh, and I, I mean this in personal interactions, not just in books, because I think, of course, there's the story aspect of books, the narration, and I think that applies to the way we navigate the world and place ourselves in it through the stories we tell each other. Yes. Um, and those stories, they are, we're always meddling with them a little bit. Uh, they, they, never, they never come out exactly the same way, even if they come from the very same basis of ingredients. 
And that's very often the case with a dish too, even one you make all the time and, and love, you know, something will be a bit different, maybe not even noticeably different, but, you know, when you're using kind of fresh ingredients and it's inevitable that there will be tiny variations. Yeah. And, um, and those variations are really interesting because, of course, they deviate from this idea of the same. Um, and yet they also confirm, in a way, the sense of something, of things that remain, even though we move on and change. Um, that there is something at the core of what we choose, how we choose to express ourselves, what we want to say about ourselves, um, that, that, that maybe stays through the dishes, through the stories that we uh, create. You have chosen three books to uh, discuss, or as representative maybe of your reading, also a magazine, The New Yorker, and the books of Otto Lange. Shall we start maybe with The Human Condition uh, by Anna Arendt? Yes. I mean, I think the books that we choose at any particular moment in a life probably change. So I, I think if you had asked me this question a few years ago, or if you asked me in a couple of years, it is, it is difficult to kind of narrow things down, especially when you read very widely, as, as I like to. Um, but what you might find is that there are preoccupations or there are themes which perhaps, you know, form a line across what most interests one. And, uh, and when I settled on these, the, 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 let's say, the, we, if, we, if we leave out the New Yorker and the Otto Lenghi, um, the, the three books that um, I, I selected for our discussion today, um, it was a bit tricky to narrow them down. But then afterwards, when I thought about that selection, it was clear to me all of a sudden that they reflect this very deep interest that I have in how we deal with history. Um, and, and this is something that has become a much bigger preoccupation for me, I would say, in the last decade or so. And, and right now has, has an even stronger re um, resonance than ever. It's, it's something that's really preoccupying me. So I think that that's also what influenced the selection. I actually felt a little bit bad as well after I, um, after I made it and I was thinking about what we might discuss because uh, I thought, okay, it's, it's December. It's been a very tough year in many ways. Like, you know, people are feeling quite weighed down, quite worn out. And then I suggest three books that are quite heavy in some respects. You know, they deal with very difficult themes and they really pose these questions about, you know, how do we, um, how do we recognize the flaws of the past? How do we, Uh, hang on to them and how do we keep our um, humanity um, in really testing circumstances um, and I thought oh you know is this really the moment uh, for to, to, to sort of confront people with these things um, but I think you know there's never a moment and there's always the moment and uh, it's just a question of um, our readiness or perhaps perhaps also a question of the Um, the space in which we are offered the chance to to grapple with these things. So I hope that your listeners, um, you know, will will sort of take this really as an invitation to to maybe think in a broader scope about the questions that are really at the heart of um, what we're what we're dealing with today, which is how 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 can we be in solidarity uh, with each other in difficult times. And um, times that test us and test our capacity to give 
um, to each other and to the wider society. And of course, these uh, the, the two novels I pick, they talk about times of war and, um, and civil strife. Um, but the Hannah Arendt, I think, is actually a very positive um, book in a certain respect. And, and for me, this book is so important. It's one that I always return to. I mean, I really dip into it, you know, regularly, like every couple of months or something to refresh something or to make a reference. I quote Hannah Arendt in almost everything I write now. You know, my husband often jokes that, yeah, it would be nice to read an essay maybe where Arendt's name doesn't pop up. Um, but it was through her that I began to understand the potential in seeing oneself as a political person, as a political being, um, because my own upbringing was very apolitical, even though I grew up in circumstances that were very obviously unjust in the segregated society in Kenya. Um, and she, in that book, she talks about how um, there's a part of us, a part of being human that is perhaps only expressed through political action and that maybe we don't realize our full potential as being if we don't have the chance to do that. And for her, political action is something that comes out of acting with others, thinking and acting with others. And it's not about, as she, she talks about something called the polis, but she says, you know, it has nothing to do with the city state and its physical location. It's got nothing to do with like uh, being part of a national community or a particular ideology. But it's what 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 we become any time that we come together with others to think and act in a way to to shift something in the world. And this was such a, an amazing thought to me um, because you know I think that it brings politics right down to this very bodily and very tangible level. And um, having been involved in a few different kinds of political campaigns, I, she gave a name to something that I had felt, uh, but hadn't really understood what exactly it was, which is that this, this kind of, this power and energy in coming together with others um, is, really, is really energizing. And the way that we see each other when we meet in that constellation um, is also different. And um, and that that is a thought that that really stays with me and really defines um, my sense of being in the world. Uh, that one can belong simply through trying to um, consider the world in 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 relation to and with other people. That this is where belonging comes out of having people with whom you can um, kind of discuss. And, uh, and argue and disagree, um, but nevertheless feel committed to doing something together in the world with. What is beautiful talking with one another, whether we agree, disagree, is also very creative. And in doing so, we can create things that are not yet, that may never be. It's a bit like that unconditional hospitality of uh, Derrida you refer to in Be My Guest. It's that possibility always of a beginning, mm. which is yeah. extremely comforting. Yeah, so hopeful. Yes. Um, yes, that we can always begin again when we you know, step into the world with others. And to feel suddenly like one's own... Um, 
capacities are, and imaginative capacities as well as um, practical, are extended simply because the, the space of, um, of possibility is suddenly opened by other people. And, and, and what this does to us, the way that we are sort of activated simply by, by the possibility um, is, is something amazing. And I also think it, it speaks to something that is really, um, I feel like people actually, Aaron talks about the space of appearance and how, um, and I think it's, it relates to what you said about possibility, because, you know, when we step into, a, into this, this space of possibility of things being able to be different, simply because we are prepared to think about how they could be different we appear differently to ourselves and to others and to be to 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 see ourselves in this way and to be seen in this way is also really empowering um and i think people really crave this because our possibilities right now when you think about uh, as citizens our possibilities to intervene to act i mean in a way you could say it's it's almost limited just to the act of voting for, for many of us like this feels like the most significant way in which we can make an intervention in the world, in the political world. Um, whereas when, when you think about things from Aaron's point of view, uh, you suddenly feel actually there are very powerful ways um, which, which may not seem to have an immediate effect in the world, but which between ourselves um, create, you know, kind of strength and hope and energy um, for things that m may surprise us. We don't know what shape they will eventually take. You made a resolution of reading more women and a more international. I was thinking we do go around the globe with the books you've chosen. Human Act, how did you come across and uh, why this book? Yeah, so Han Kang is maybe best known for The Vegetarian, um, which won the International Man Booker Prize. Uh, but I was invited to a, a literary festival in South Korea in 2018. And in the run-up to that, I sort of wanted to read more Korean literature and just be uh, kind of slightly, have a different connection to the country before going there. And I was invited specifically to a city called Gwangju in, um, yeah. in South Korea. And um, on the flight over, I began to read Human Acts because it's a book that's set in Gwangju. And that was why I picked it. It was also the first book that I read of Han Kang's. It's a really harrowing book. I mean, absolutely beautiful written. The form is amazing. But um, it's the story of this uprising um, against the military dictatorship in Korea. Um, uh, it started on the 18th of May, 1980. Um, and it went on for around a week, and it was very brutally uh, suppressed. But the people in Guangzhou, you know, from professors, students, they were so courageous, and they really tried to resist this military um, dictatorship uh, and, and this and this and this suppression. Um, and to have read this book and then to arrive in the city um, just sort of amplified the power of the book for me. Mm -hmm. um, I think I hadn't had that for quite, I can't remember another instance. I mean, I, one, I guess one often tries to read um, books related to the places that one's going to. Um, this is also a, a way of traveling before you travel or continuing to travel afterwards. 
Um, but th that connection between place and, and, and book uh, has never been put so strong for me as with Guangzhou and, and human acts. And Guangzhou is now a very, very special city in, um, in terms of South Korea's contemporary democratic understanding of itself, because mm -hmm. this event that was, um, you know, so brutally suppressed, 2,000 people at least were killed, um, and which was then sort of really underplayed in the, in the, in the country's history, has now become like a defining um, sort of incident and, and they really use Guangzhou to make this new democratic story of who they are, which is like a people who fought for freedom. And in the city, Guangzhou, everywhere you go, there are memorials to, um, to that time. And what was also very interesting is when we were there, there was still, um, although there was this celebration of the courage of those who fought against the dictatorship, there hadn't been any real holding to account of the people in the military, the perpetrators. And so there was a sense of a disconnect, which the book also deals with, yes. um, of, you know, how, how, who are we really? Um, and it's, it's on the one hand, it's, it's wonderful to celebrate the freedom fighters. And on the other hand, um, people are still around who uh, could be implicated for those crimes. Interestingly, this year they started a truth commission in May, um, which will run for two to three years to look more closely. And so um, this book was also to me, it was connected with a feeling of being very inspired by what is possible in a country that decides to, um, yeah, think differently about itself and how events can be used to make a new national narrative and one that was very personally felt by all the people. Yes. And I was really inspired also because I feel, even though, you know, being in Europe, I always try to think of Europe as part of the world and to kind of, you know, relate to other places. But I think that geography has a certain kind of um, force field and it, it does skew how, how we think. And being there, I realized how Eurocentric I am, even though my biography, you know, connects me to, to other parts of the world. And I, and I try really hard also to think in other ways. But um, it was just really inspiring to be there and just to see how actually nobody was looking to Europe. Yeah, it's freeing <laughs> also, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was very humbling. Uh, it's, it's beautiful also, the human act. Um, she really tries to give an identity to all those bodies. And the yeah. book starts on piles and piles of bodies. And it's giving those bodies names, dignity, ritual. Um, that's also an interesting question of, and I think it's reflected in, your, in most of your choices, the individual and the plural. And that's what Aaron, the plurality of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Book. Yes. Yeah, that's such a great connection that you make there. And I, exactly what Haran says about plurality and how we are all exactly the same in that we're all completely unique. And I think in all the books that I picked, this idea is somehow encapsulated um, and so beautifully and so movingly and so powerfully. Which takes us to your, your next book, Do, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, which is... Um, by a Canadian writer. Is she a friend of yours? May I ask, because I see you're credited. 
Yes, she is a friend of mine. Um, and uh, knowing somebody, I mean, this is an extraordinary book. I'm you know, at every level. I mean, just in terms of the the scope it covers, you know, the Chinese history from the Cultural Revolution to Tiananmen Square to contemporary times. But to 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 know the person who wrote it was for me just it added this other layer of kind of appreciation and admiration. And we always feel that we somehow know something of an author when we read a book we feel very close to them especially if the book um really resonates with us and 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 touches us deeply and for me even knowing madeline um for some years um now uh to read this book was just to to feel like this 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 kind of aspect opened up on her i felt very fortunate to to know somebody who could write such an amazing book to feel like something that is such a profound work of art um you know comes from somebody that uh, you can have a coffee with i really loved this book because again this question of um of history and recording um at at this kind of national level but also at the individual level um is explored in in really funny and 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 uh, sort of um harrowing and also very intellectual ways and and also the act of writing as one of recording and preserving and the way music is woven into this book the Goldberg variations and one of the lines that recurs throughout the book is is this idea that um the quest a question that is asked um could everything already have been written from the beginning um and and this idea of copying that is repeated through the text to people rewriting things and also this idea that somehow things that happen are inscribed are written into us um you know like very very profound events that they stay in the body and and they move over generations so that even if we didn't live something we maybe inherit like deep in our biology um traces of that I think this is also a very powerful idea and I think we feel that in families sometimes that there may be things we haven't experienced but we seem to carry them you yeah. know from our parents or grandparents um and and so what do we do with this with these traces uh, how can we kind of um bring them out give them voice words turn them into other kinds of stories uh, that connect us back and take us forward yes there's a um, quote from um, Isaac Benson, Karen Blixen in the Arendt book, all sorrows can be born if you put them in a story or tell a story about them. Yeah, I love it that for Arendt, um, you know, fiction, storytelling was also, and poetry were really important modes of um, grappling with the world and and that she really valued them and thought they were as essential to her mm. as philosophy and critical theory um and i do think that those of us who you know are devoted to reading um yeah also understand that um at different levels um that to to enter into stories to invite in stories to host them um is uh, is a way of um signaling to ourselves a kind of openness to the world to to change 
and wanting to also reach out and, and, and be part of more of the world in, in whichever ways we can. Um, and I think it's amazing that books offer us that chance um, to, to be part of other worlds. Maybe it's time to speak a little bit about The New Yorker. That's one of your choices, and I thought that was a great choice. It comes through a friend. True. The New Yorker came as a total surprise um, several years ago from a friend of mine. And um, from the first moment I started reading it, I just thought, oh my goodness, you know, how, how did I not have this for years? And, um, and my friend then said, okay, well, this is going to be your present for life now. And she just <laughs> renews it for me every year. But I really love it because, you know, you get to know a magazine like that. It becomes like a friend and you open it. And the first thing I do is I go to the shouts and murmurs section. And then I read the, uh, the restaurant review. I mean, I'm never going to go to any of these restaurants. I, I know that. <laughs> I really enjoy the restaurant reviews and then the cartoons. The cartoons. I love the cartoons, especially like during these last months where, as I said, I haven't read as much as I usually do. Um, but, you know, you just start reading the cartoons and then before you know it, you also started an article. I feel like it's, it's a very sort of, um, it's a very generous host, The New Yorker, because it gives you little bits and kind of very substantial bits And you may think, yeah, I just, I need something else. I'm just going to look at the cartoons. <laughs> and then an hour later, you're suddenly in the middle of an article about, you know, wine growing in China. Yes. And again, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're given things to read that you wouldn't normally, you know, think are, are part of your interests. But then suddenly you're like, oh, that, that is really interesting. And I, I like this 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 newness because I'm quite a creature of habit, as I write in my book as well. Like, I, you know, I want to eat the same stuff, have the same flavors again, have this reliable part of my life. But then I'm also always really pleased when something new comes that um, that I, I realize I really like. And The New Yorker keeps this new part open in my life um, with, with each edition, the possibility of discovery. And uh, we come now to your last choice, which is uh, the books of Otto Lange and food, back to food. Back to food, yeah. yes, the daily sustenance. Um, I love these books because they've totally transformed the way that I cook and eat over the last decade or so. I think for me, the kind of revelation was the idea of having many different flavors on the table at the same time. Um, I mean, I really love it that you can have a salad that is sort of Asian influenced and then to have, you know, a, a dish that is quite Italian and, and next to that is sort of um, a Lebanese dip and that all the things when you put them on your plate, they, they all taste really good and they somehow complement each other. And even if they don't, it doesn't matter, but they just work. Mm. And, and this idea of different things that can belong together, even if at first glance um, it might seem slightly odd, uh, was, was something that uh, Otto Lenge opened up to me. Because although my life was always full of different cuisines because of my background and my interest in food, I think just this very casual approach to what can go with what uh, was something I, I learned from Otto Lenge that I really appreciate and that I think is a wonderful metaphor for how we might want to be in the world and what we might want to bring together that actually the kind of most surprising sensations and the most kind of satisfying 
might actually be those where things that we, strange things, shall we say, in inverted commas, add something incredibly inspiring, enriching and delicious um, to the whole. Priya Basil, thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about reading, which I think of as, as essential nourishment as eating. And the two together is just a wonderful possibility. <laughs> so thank you for combining them so nicely. The On Reading podcast is produced by Will, Bella and Clementine. For more information about the podcast, our guests and the books we've talked about, please visit onreading.co.uk.